All right, now, let me go ahead and say this. Um, you're going to be seeing a lot more of me. So, since that's the case, and normally I've been, you know, told that I leave you guys hanging a lot, and I, do, I happen to do that a lot, you know, on the, on the west side of the country, too. But I can now sh begin to teach some series now, because I know that I'll be seeing you soon. You know, so when I leave off, you can know without a doubt it won't be six or seven months before the next time you see me. I will be back soon enough to pick up where I left off. And so that's what we're going to be doing on Thursdays and Sundays. We're going to get into some, it's, it's difficult for me to just, you know, teach 60 minutes and, and, and that's it. You know, have a start and have a finish. I, I, I just ha I have too much stuff on the inside of me. So I can, uh, I can now take my time. So I'm excited about that. Uh, let's go to. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I want us to look at the case of Abraham. Now we're all familiar with Abraham. You said what? Oh, yes, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, was, I wasn't asking. But okay, um, so yes, we are familiar with Abraham. We're familiar with the life of Abraham. And we are familiar with this word covenant. Now, God cut a covenant with a man named Abraham. And because of that covenant that he cut and that obedience of Abraham, we are now in a position to be blessed. Let's start with Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families, say all the families, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are included in this all the families here. Verse 4 says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land of the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. Now let's drop down to chapter 13. And uh, let's just look at the first two verses here. It says, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had with, and lot with him to the south. Verse 2 says, Abram was very what? It does not say that Abram was rich. It says Abram was what? Very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Take a mental note of that or, or write that down in your notes that Abram was very rich. Notice that as we read here, his name is 
Abram. Abram was very rich. All right, let's jump over to chapter 15 now. And let's look at verse 1. It says, these, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. It says, I am your shield. I am your protector. Verse 2 says, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Verse 3 said that Abram said, look, you have indeed given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now, I did not give you a title. I'm sure you're familiar with the territory that we're reading here. But our title is our covenant with God. Our covenant with God. All right, verse 3 of chapter 15. It says, then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. It says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6 says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram believed in the Lord. The Lord accounted that to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a what? Made a covenant with Abram. Now, the culture at this time, the practice of cutting a covenant was common. Two individuals would come into covenant. For example, one would slice their wrists, both would slice their wrists and intermingle their blood. They'd intermingle their blood, their blood would mix, that's them coming into covenant. Now, covenant still exists today, it's just that the majority of society today, we do not practice covenant uh, the way they did during the time of Abram. You know, our, our word today, it really doesn't mean that much to us like it did then. When you came into covenant, that was a solemn binding agreement that cannot be broken. That's what a covenant is, a solemn binding agreement that cannot be broken. For example, two men would come together and they would take animals and 
uh, cut them down the middle and uh, have them in twos. The blood would be all over the place. And the two of them would walk through the split animals. They would walk through the pieces, crisscross. They would walk through the pieces, and that was them making a covenant. And when they were in covenant, what that meant was whatever's mine is now yours. Whatever's yours is now mine. So we're in covenant now. We're one now. So if I'm lacking in an area and you're not lacking in that area, then I'm not lacking in that area. If, if I'm lacking in finances and you're not lacking in finances, then I'm not lacking in finances. Why? Because we're in covenant. Now, just like those two individuals would walk between the split animals, that's what we see here in verse 17. The smoking oven and the burning torch, that was God passing between the pieces with Abram. Just like two individuals would pass through the pieces, Abram and God passed through the pieces, and that was them making a covenant. Now, think about what I just said, that when two people are in covenant, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. Now, just imagine being in covenant with God. If I'm lacking and God's not lacking, then I'm not lacking. So whatever I need, if God, who I'm in covenant with, has, then I have. Now, you have to get an understanding of covenant to know how important and how much of an impact being in covenant with God has on your life. Because if you know God, who is the sustainer of the universe, the creator of the world, God has all the riches. The, the earth belongs to the Lord. The silver and gold belongs to the Lord, and you're in covenant with him. Whatever God has, you have. Whatever God has, I have. Whatever he possesses, I possess. The problem is the majority of Christians don't know that. The majority of Christians do not know their covenant rights. And the majority of Christians are waiting for God to, come, to, to crack open the sky and to hear a voice coming from the clouds so they can find out what his will is, what his will is for their life, when they don't realize that God and his word are one and the same. And if you want to find out about God's will, just go to his word. And when you go to God's word, you find God's will. So if there's a debate as to whether I have a right to be healed, you can go to his word and find out. If there's a debate as to whether I should have peace in my life, peace in my marriage, peace in my business transactions, if there's ever a curiosity about that, you can go to his word and find out. Because all of our covenant rights and benefits are in his word. So God made a covenant with Abram, verse 18. It says, to your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, <clears throat> the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God was saying, I've, I've given you all this land. Now look here in, verse, in chapter 17. Verse 1 says, Then Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Whenever a covenant takes place, there's a name change. 
He says, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this right now, and then we'll go to scriptures later to, to verify what's being said here. Do, do you know who those kings are? Yeah, that, that, that's right. Uh, we, we can go throughout the Old Testament and see some kings that came from his bloodline, but it's not just talking about them. It's talking about us, too. See, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a room filled with kings. But see, if you don't know that, how does it benefit you? And see, if you're a king, then all you have to do is think, how does a king handle a situation? What does a king do in times of crises? Ladies, you queens, from a biblical standpoint, you're, you're kings. He says, kings shall come from you. Now, let me go ahead and say this right here. Has anyone ever heard the statement, blood is thicker than water? Just by a show of hands. Have you ever heard blood? Okay. Now. We use that a lot, don't we? But how many of you know what that means? Blood is thicker than water. Okay. Blood is thicker than water. Most of the time when I hear that statement, or when I hear someone use that statement, they're usually using it in, in, in a particular context, and that context is when it involves their family and someone else on the outside. So they'll say, well, blood is thicker than water. So it sounds like to me what they're saying is that blood represents family. Amen. And blood is thicker than water. Well, that sounds reasonable, does it not? I mean, I have the same blood in, uh, in me. The same blood in me, you know, flows in my sister or flows in my brother, flows in my mother and my father. So blood is thicker than water. That, that makes sense. But see, here's the problem. If blood represents family, then water has to represent something. And well, what does it represent? Well, most of the time we don't know. We really don't even have a, re a, a, a reasonable definition for water. We just assume that blood means family. So since blood represents family, blood is thicker than water. But if blood represents family, then water has to represent something also so we can make the, 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 the clarification or distinguish that family is thicker than whatever. So water has to represent something. Here's the problem. Blood doesn't mean family. Blood is thicker than water. That statement is not family is thicker than everyone else, co-workers or friends or associates. That's not what that statement means. Blood is thicker than water. Blood in that statement does not represent family. So you have to get an understanding of covenant to know what blood is thicker than water means because that phrase, that statement's been here a lot longer than all of us. Blood is thicker than water was around in the days of Abram. So what does blood is thicker than water mean? Oh, oh it, 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 it's going to make plenty of sense to you. Is there any of you, you have friends that you're closer to than your own family? Any of you, you have friends that you, you actually trust your friends more than some of these family members. Even though if you cut you and those family members up, you can trace the blood back to your grandfather or forefathers or whoever, but you actually have friends that you have no blood relationship with, but you're closer to them than you are with family. 
many of us could raise our hands and say, yeah, well, I've got some friends that I'm closer to than my own family members. Covenant, whenever, there's, whenever a covenant takes place, there's shedding of blood. Two strangers can cut a covenant, but because they cut that blood covenant, they are now closer to each other than that person's own mother or father. We've been using this blood is thicker than water statement for years, and we've been using it wrong. What that statement means is this, is that the blood of the covenant that we've cut is thicker than the water of the womb that we both came out of. That same womb that I came out of, that same womb that my sister or my brother came out of, as close as we are coming from the same womb, if I cut a covenant with this individual over here, this blood covenant, I am now closer to that person than my own brother, than my own sister, even though we came from the same mother. That's what blood is thicker than water means. You see, that's, that's covenant practice. When you come into a blood covenant with someone, you are closer to that person than anyone else. See, Abram had an understanding of that. And so when God cut that covenant with him, he knew now God was now bound to his word, which means that if God says something, it has to come to pass. Otherwise, God is a liar. And if God's a liar, then we are in trouble. So now watch this. Watch this. Now, now go back to chapter 15. And look at verse 4. Genesis 15, 4 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. God just opened up his mouth and said something. God just opened up his mouth and said to Abram, That one coming from your own flesh will be your heir. Well, Abram understands covenant. God just said one coming from my own body is going to be my heir. So that means it must be so. All right, watch this. Look in chapter 18, the first verse. It says, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So, so he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran, down, ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by. And as much as you have come to your servant, they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well-advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? Now, if God tells you something's going to come to pass and you laugh at that, what did you just do to God? 
you, you, you pretty much spit in his face. Because God, see, see, here's the fact here. The fact is God said. See, whatever God says come to pass. I don't know why Sarah was having a, a problem receiving. I understand she was old, but I don't understand why she was having a problem receiving that she was going to have a child. Because it's not because Abram said you're going to have a child. God said you're going to have a child. And if I just go back to the beginning, if I just look at the nature and character of God, it seems to me that whenever God would say something, it would come to pass. Like, for example, when he said, let there be light, it's interesting how light appeared when he said, let there be light. If God said it, it's so. Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Look at the question in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Now, now what's wrong with her? How are you, you going to deny that you weren't laughing? It says she laughed. It's like, you think you can hide something from God? It says, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. All right. <clears throat> Look here in chapter 21. All right, in Genesis 15, 4, God told Abraham, or at that time he was Abram, God told Abram, one from your own flesh, one coming from your own body, shall be your heir. Which means that one is coming from your body that will carry on your name, that will, that will carry on your family, your legacy. Genesis 21, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So we now see that Isaac is born. God said Isaac would be born. Here he is. But what did God say about this son? He said he'd be an heir. Remember that. God said he would be an heir. Now, look here in chapter 22. Verse 1. Genesis 22, 1 says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Now, I have to explain here what this word tested means because you know many people think well God is testing me well let's ask this question what is the purpose of a test let's ask this question if a teacher has students in the class and she's been teaching these students for quite some time a couple weeks have gone by and she's been teaching this particular subject and now it's time for a test what's the purpose of that test just to see if they've learned, to see if everything that she's been saying has gone on the inside, to see if they've gone home and studied, to see, to see if they understand what she's been teaching, to see if they know it. Well, teachers don't know all things, do they? So they can't assume that that person, that that student has the information, has received, has an understanding of the information that she's been teaching, so she has to test them to see if they know. Why? Because she doesn't, she doesn't know if they know. Because the teacher doesn't know the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. She doesn't know that, so she's got to test it. Well, why would God test you when he already knows what you're going to do? 
See, there's a scripture in James. You know, we hear it a lot. You know, we read it a lot and we say it a lot and we quote it a lot. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into. Pretty much test temptations, trials. This is count on all joy, my brethren. When you fall into temptations, tests, and trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Well, once again, you know, people go to that verse and they figure, well, God's testing me. Well, no, God's not testing you. God doesn't test you. God proves you. See right here, really what this is saying is now it came to pass after these things that God proved Abraham. See, God already knows what you're going to do. And he's going to prove it before the devil that this is what you're going to do. See, God doesn't test you. God proves you. The devil, he tests you. The devil tests you. Going back to that verse in James, count it all joy, my brethren. See, people, see, we thought we were supposed to count it all joy when we fall into the tests. We thought we were supposed to count it all joy when we fall into the tests. No, 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 no. See, that's, see, that's what happens when commas show up in, in Scripture. Sometimes it takes away from the meaning of a verse. See, the, see, the commas aren't, haven't been given by inspiration. The words have. See, translators put... Uh, capital, well, lowercase letters and punctuation marks for clarity so that we could understand because in the original text was all capital letters. There were no lowercase letters and there's no punctuation. There were no chapters and verses. So translators translating it from Hebrew and Greek into English, they put the, the uh, lowercase letters and punctuation marks in chapter and verse so, we, so we'd have some clarity here. A man did an outstanding job, but man is not perfect. Now in that verse, it says, uh, 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 count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into tests, then there's a comma after tests, and that's, that's, that's not where the comma should be. As a matter of fact, let's, go, let's, let's just look at it. I'm reading from the New King James. You may have the... the keep, your, keep your finger on Genesis 22. James chapter 1, verse 2, when you have it, say, I have it. All right, verse 2, it says, my brethren, comma. Now, a comma denotes a what? A brief pause. So it says, my brethren, comma. And then it says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, comma. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, so it appears from here that I should count it all joy when I fall into the trials. And so when we think joy, well, we think joy comes from God. So obviously these tests and trials are coming from God. I should count it all joy when I fall into them. No, God doesn't test you. He proves you. The devil tests you. This should read like this. My brethren counted all joy, comma, when you fall into various trials, comma, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You don't count it all joy when you fall into the trials and temptations. What you count all joy is knowing that the testing of your faith works patience. Now, when does the testing of your faith work patience? When you fall into temptations, tests, and trials. The devil wants to steal your faith. He's going to send things your way to try, and to try and steal your faith, to get your focus off of the word of God. God says if you remain focused, the testing of your faith is going to work patience or literally endurance. That this test and trial that the enemy sends your way, it's not going to take you out, but it's going to make you more durable. God didn't test you. He already knows what you're going to do. God knew what was going to happen this day before the creation of mankind. He knows all things. 
So back to Genesis 22, it says God tested Abraham. No, God didn't test Abraham. God proved Abraham. Now watch this. It says God tested Abraham and, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, gosh, you got, you got to pay attention to the wording here. And something should explode on the inside of you. You should get a, get a revelation of something here. Let me read verse 1 again. Now it came to pass, Genesis 22, 1. After these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, who's he? God. Then God said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What does that mean? If God is telling Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him up as a burnt offering, what does that mean? To he's, he's telling him to sacrifice his son, which means what? That his son will no longer exist. I mean, in, 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 in simple terms, God was telling Abraham to kill Isaac. Tell him to kill, kill his son. Now put yourself in that position. How would you feel if God told you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice. Ask yourself the question, how would you feel? What would go on on the inside of you? Would you be confused? Would you be afraid? Would you worry? Latter part of that verse 2. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God was telling Abraham to kill Isaac. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Now, now between verse 2 and 3, we don't see any kind of argument or debate going back and forth between God and Abraham. We don't know what would happen, but we see here in verse 3, it says Abraham, Abraham rose early in the morning. I just wondered, if God told you to take your son and offer him up as a sacrifice, would you get sleep that night? So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So, so far up to this point, Abraham is being obedient. God told him to do something, so he's doing it. Mind you, we're talking about Abraham's only son, Isaac, whom he loves dearly. And God is telling him to do what? Offer him up to me as a sacrifice, which means you're going to kill your son because I told you to kill your son. And so far, Abraham appears to be more than willing to do it. Verse four, it says, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. All right, now I can't read verse five yet. We need to consider what we've read so far. God tells Abraham to do what? Kill his son. Which means that when they go up to the mountain together, if Abraham does what God tells him to do, then Abraham should return from the mountain by himself. Correct. Why? Because Abraham's simply doing what God told him to do. Correct? But remember, there were two young men that also came with him. <laughs> Verse 5. 
Now mind you, what's Abraham going to do now? He's going to kill his son. He's going to offer him up as a sacrifice, correct? That up to this point, that's what we've read, right? I'm going to read this slowly. Please get this. Please get this for me. Receive this. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, because there were two young men, right? Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Do I need to read that again? Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and the lad and I will come back to you. How can the lad and I come back to you, Abraham, if God told you to offer him up as a sacrifice, but you're telling your two young men, we will come back. Did you not hear what God told you to do? He said, offer your son up as a sacrifice. You're telling the young men, the lad and I will come back. Is he crazy? Is, this, is, this, is some, there something in his mind snapped? It, what is Abraham saying? Because God said, take your son, offer him up as a sacrifice. You're telling the two young men, we'll come back to you. Because Abraham understood something. What did he understand? He understood covenant. Abraham understands this. God, you said that my boy would be an heir, so a dead boy can't be an heir. So with confidence, I will do what you say because two things are going to happen. As I'm about to kill him, you're going to stop me. Or if I kill him, you're going to raise him from the dead because you said he's going to be an heir. So look at verse 6. So now, now we know how Abraham feels. He is confident in what he's doing. So look here. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Abraham is A-OK -okay with doing this. He's confident. He's not worried. He's not concerned. He's not afraid. And laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So now Isaac, he's a little concerned here. He's like, look, we're supposed to go up here and... Where the lamb at? Come on, Dad, where the lamb at? Verse 9. I mean, verse 8. Then Abraham said, my son, God, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Mind you, while he's doing this, he is not afraid. He's not afraid because he knows that if two finite men can cut a covenant and stay true and committed to that covenant, then the covenant that I've cut with Almighty God, if man can stay true to a covenant, how much more can Almighty God, the creator of the world, the creator of the earth, the creator of the stars, the creator of everything, how much more will he stay true to his word? Verse 10, then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, so he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Then Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn because I can find none greater. Says the Lord, because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, Abraham, Abraham, God knew what he was dealing with in Abraham. See, God knew he couldn't send, you know, some of us to do this job, but, but he knew who he was dealing with, with Abraham. And, and, and because he knew what he was dealing with, he was able to tell Abraham what to do, and Abraham could do it with confidence. And just think, because of what Abraham did, I'm blessed. I didn't have to do it because of what Abraham did, I'm blessed. Now look here, go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. When you have it, say, I have it. Hebrews eleven seventeen. 17. Well, how did Abraham even do all of this? Huh, the first two words of verse 17 tells us how. By faith. Watch this. By faith, Abraham, when he was proved, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, see, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding this. This is what Abraham concluded, what? That God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So like I said before, Abraham was convinced of two things. God will stop me, or God's going to raise him up from the dead. Nonetheless, this boy will live because he's my heir. Fully, fully convinced. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> Look here in verse 1. Romans 4, 1. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our who? The Bible just said, well, Paul says Abraham, our father. But, but, but Paul wasn't there when Abraham and, and Isaac were alive. So what does Paul mean when he says Abraham, our father? And here we are, thousands of years later, when we read this scripture, it's alive and it's true. So I'm, I'm reading, if I make it personal, Abraham, my father. Well, how is it that I'm a child of Abraham? It says, Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. That's all he did. He believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. 
Verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. All right, now drop down to verse 13. It says, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It says, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who contrary to hope and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. I am a descendant of Abraham. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's room. Watch this. He did not waver at the promise. He didn't doubt of God through unbelief, but was strengthened or strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. See, when you don't understand faith and when you don't understand righteousness and when you don't understand covenant, then it sounds like a person can be bragging. It sounds like a person can be arrogant when they're just simply being like Father Abraham, fully convinced. Fully convinced that whatever God says is true. Now, why did Paul say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, that, that Abraham's the father of us all? Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. All right, and when you have Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 5. Galatians 3, 5 says, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of what? Faith. It says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are who? Sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you, all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Watch this drop down to verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that what? That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, not just the Gentiles, but the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might through the promise of the Spirit, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through what? Faith. Stay in the same chapter. Drop down to verse 26. Watch this. It says, For you are all sons of God. Now, it would be one thing if the verse says, you are all sons of God. Then we would know that everyone on this earth is a child of God. 
But the verse doesn't stop there. It says, for you are all sons of God, how? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So now we know, okay, he's only talking about sons of God. But why are they sons of God? Or how are they sons of God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So if Jesus Christ is not my Lord and Savior, I don't need to read any further. He's only talking about those who are saved. Verse 27 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. What does that mean? That means that now your identity is Christ. Your identity is Christ. That's why the Bible calls us the body of Christ. See, he's the head. The head is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The body is here in the earth realm. So to the world, to the sinners, to the unbelievers, they're not going to see the Christ that's at the right hand of the Father. They're only going to see the body of Christ. So they're not going to see the Christ that's in heaven. They, all they see is the Christ here in the earth realm. See, I'm Christ. You're Christ. You're Christ. Not the man himself, but we're the body of Christ. Because we're the body and he's the head. We're one with him. Our identity is Christ. He says, I put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Well, wait a minute. Hold up. There are Jews. There are Greeks. There are males. There are females. But Paul said there's neither any of them. Why? Because your identity is Christ. He says, there is neither male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then what? You are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, you have inherited something. Now, glory to God, I don't even have to know what I've inherited. I know it's good because it's coming from God. At, at, at the time that I first read this verse, I don't even have to understand what I've inherited. You should get an understanding of what you've inherited. But at this point, I don't even have to understand it to get, to get satisfaction out of it. Because I know that if I've inherited something from God, I've inherited something good. Now it's just a matter of finding out what I've inherited. Well, if you want to find out what you've inherited, read from Romans to Jude. And you can find out what you have inherited. And when I read from Romans to Jude, I find out things like this. I've inherited healing. I've inherited redemption. I've inherited deliverance. I've inherited blessings. I've inherited victory. I've inherited divine forgiveness. I've inherited love that passes all knowledge. I've inherited peace of God that surpasses all understanding. My inheritance is right here in the Word of God. It's a matter of me finding what, what the covenant says... And whatever the covenant says, that now needs to come out of my mouth with boldness and confidence. How come with boldness and confidence? Because you're God's righteousness. The Bible says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God. Righteousness is not something you're trying to work on. Righteousness is not something that you live. Righteousness is what and who you are. You are righteous. You don't live righteous. You are righteous. Because you're righteous, you live holy. But you are righteous. Can't get any more righteous or any less righteous because the righteousness wasn't yours in the first place. 
You're God's righteousness, which simply means what? I have right standing with the Father. I don't now have to go to the priest and he go into the temple of the Holy of Holies. I can go to the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. I now have access to it because of what Christ did. I'm Abraham's seed. I'm the seed of Abraham. If I've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because if I go back to Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, first title that shows up is Son of Abraham. That's who Christ is. He's the Son of Abraham. And he's the Son of David and many other titles. But one of his titles is Son of Abraham. Well, there would have to be a purpose in him being called Son of Abraham. If I've put on Christ, I'm also a Son of Abraham. Now, see, see, you, you have to decide. It's, it's a choice that you're going to have to make. You are going to have to decide that if God says this is who I am, then this is who I am. Now, now turn to 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 6. Did you know that God is smarter than you? Did you know that? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, are you there? Now, we read in Genesis, God said to Abraham, kings will come from you. First Timothy 6, 13. It says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, says, which he will manifest in his own time. Now watch the wording here. The Bible's very specific as to who we are and as to who he is. It says, which he will manifest in his own time. Watch this. It says, he who is the blessed and only potentate. Now before we re read on, the scripture didn't say potentate of potentates. It says, he who is the blessed and only potentate, which means sovereign God. It says, he's the only one. But after that, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, if you have a new King James Version, you'll notice that the first king and the first lord are capital K, capital L. And this is king of kings, lord of lords, lowercase king, lowercase L. Real simple to receive. I'm a little king, he's a big king. I'm a little lord, he's a big lord. But it said he was the king of kings and lord of lords. The Bible just called you a king. What are you going to do with that? You better receive that. Because see, if you don't receive it, it does you no good. Just like the Bible says uh, in, in the Great Commission, Jesus said these signs will follow those who believe. So if you don't believe, then it's, that's not going to help. Then he said these signs will follow those who believe. Says, in my name they will do certain things. But in the commission in Matthew, he says, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, of course, he's in heaven, so he transferred that authority to us here in the earth realm. But authority does you no good if you don't know that you have it. 
And authority no, does you no good if you hear that you have authority, but you don't receive it. Look at Revelation. Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us, him, Jesus, loved us and him, Jesus, washed us from our sins in his, Jesus' own blood and has made us something. Kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Bible just said I'm a king. The Bible just said I'm a Lord. The Bible just said I'm a priest. I'm not saying it because I'm arrogant. I'm not saying it because I'm, I'm conceited. I'm saying what the word says about me. Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. So I'm going to speak what God's word says about me. Now, if I'm a king and I'm a lord and I'm a priest, how am I supposed to handle debt? How am I supposed to handle sickness? How would a king handle that? How would a king handle anything the enemy throws his way? Well, I, I just, the Bible says I'm to be like Christ, so I can just go to the Gospels, look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when the devil showed up, when something happened that, that went against the will of God, how did, how did Jesus handle it? Well when, well, when there was lack, he supplied. That's how he dealt with lack. When there was sickness and disease, he, he healed. When one was in torment, demon-possessed, possessed with an unclean spirit, he told that spirit to come out. And that person was at peace. That person was made whole. That's how he dealt with the situation. Well, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's giving you that same authority. See, that, that scripture didn't say these signs will follow pastors, and these signs will follow preachers, these signs will follow apostles and prophets. No, it says these signs will follow them who believe. Now, now I'm telling you right now, and, and a little bit later on, we're going to lay hands on the sick. Which is fine. It's good. We find that in the Word of God. But I'm telling you, you're not going to receive your healing because I'm Pastor Price. Because the Bible says these signs will follow those who believe. They will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. Why will the sick, will, sick recover? Because these signs will follow believing ones. When I lay hands on you, I expect you to recover not because I'm the pastor, but because I'm a believing one. And that's what his Word says. I'm telling you right now, you don't need me to lay hands on you. You can lay hands on yourself if you're a believing one. Now, I'm more than willing to pray for you. The Bible says the prayer faithful heal the sick. And any sins they have, they'll be forgiven. We see Jesus laying hands on the sick. But there were times in the scriptures where, where the disciples could have handled situations on their own and then they would do something irritating like go and wake them up in the back of the boat. Then he goes stop the, he stopped the storm, he stopped the raging of the water, and he looked at them, he says, 
Where's your faith? You could have stopped this storm, but you went and woke me up. But I told you I've given you authority and power to trample on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy and nothing by what will by any means hurt you. I like to go with God. If God's word says it, he says nothing will by any means hurt me. That means if I stay in the will of God, then I will have the years that God said I'd have. Staying in the will of God, I'm old 70. If reason by strength, 80. And longer than that. 120, you're right, young lady. I'm with the 120. I like the 120. Why? Because anything that's good in the old covenant is better in the new. If God will open up the windows of heaven for servants, how much more will he do it for his own children? Bible says this is a, 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 a new covenant, a better covenant, built and established on better promises. That means all the good promises I can find in the old covenant are made better under the new. So any healing and prosperity and provision scriptures I find in the old, it's, it's already set as far as the New Testament is concerned. But you got to believe it. you got to understand, I'm in covenant with God. God is now obligated. He's obligated, not because I'm making requests. God allowed his word to come out of his mouth. And once God did that, he's, he's bound to his word. And the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. He's not a man that he cannot lie. So when God speaks, he's telling the truth. And if God's word says you're blessed, then, then you're blessed. Even if you're not experiencing it, you're still blessed. It's a matter of receiving that and it coming to pass or it coming to manifestation in your life. But if I die before my time, God's word doesn't change. I died the redeemed. I died the healed. From his viewpoint, from where he is on the throne, he doesn't see sickness and disease. He sees what he said in his word. Amen? Do you, do you receive that? All right, every head bowed, every eye closed.